Welcome to Ballpark Banter, a podcast dedicated to exploring the 30 ballparks of Major League Baseball. We're a pair of ballpark gurus who've been to every MLB stadium and now want to take you through what it's like to catch a game at each. On this show, each ballpark gets its own episode where we'll explore its history and then dive deep into the facts, figures, and fun anecdotes that make it unique. Follow us on social at Ballpark Banter for regular doses of ballpark trivia and visit ballparkbanterpodcast.com for more information. Hello and welcome to another episode of Ballpark Banter where we explore the 30 ballparks of Major League Baseball. One by one in the same order as when we saw them all one summer with our good friends. Eternal shout out as always every episode to Kendall, Jack, and Ruben. My name is Travis Parker Smith, and with me as he is on every episode is my friend and fellow ballpark guru, Kellen Larson. And today we are going to be exploring a place called Blue Heaven on Earth, also known as Dodger Stadium. Now, as always, before we dive into the history of this ballpark and take you around the bases of what you can see if you visit there today, Kellen, what's the first thing that comes to mind when you think of Dodger Stadium? The first thing that comes to mind for me for Dodger Stadium is the color scheme, mostly in the different seat colors. So as we talked about in our opening episode about the general history of the ballpark, we mentioned this um, retro classic style that became so popular around the turn of the millennium. A common feature often of those ballparks is this very neutral colored um, stadium seat. Uh, yeah, the forest green, right? Yeah, the forest green. And um, that's not what we have at Dodger Stadium. We actually have a multicolored and multi-tiered system that is really pretty when you see, you know, a shot of the empty ballpark or or a pregame shot on the broadcast. So apparently the the top deck of the seats is like a light blue color supposed to represent the ocean and the skies that are surrounding all of los angeles the reserve level is like a seafoam green that represents the landscape that's around dodger stadium the ravine the lodge level seats are a light orange supposed to represent the sandy beaches and then the field level seats are kind of light yellow that remind us of the sunny sun of uh, Southern California. Well, that's a, a truly representative kind of encapsulation of not only the ballpark, but the the city and, and area of California in which it sits. It's a, uh, a lovely introduction to the stadium indeed. And as you said, you, you actually get a lot of opportunity if you're going to go to a Dodger game to see this different color scheme in the seats, thanks to the late arriving and early departing crowd, which we'll touch on here in just a little bit. But before we get to that, Cal and I, I also kind of want you, as as always, to take a step back and give me just some kind of general fast facts to orient us to Dodger Stadium. We like to go over all the names that these ballparks have been called in their history. And with Dodger Stadium, it's pretty much always just been Dodger Stadium. The only time that it's been called anything else was in the early 60s when the Angels played there. For a few years, it was known as Chavez Ravine Stadium because the Angels didn't want to play in Dodger Stadium. So as they rented it out while their own Angel Stadium was being built. Yeah, we talked about that briefly when talking about the two ballparks that the Angels played in. Well, their stadium, Angel Stadium, was being built. Wrigley Field 
ironic, and uh, Dodger Stadium. Again, check out the Angel Stadium episode for that. One of the things, and, and I'll touch on this here a little bit in the history section that I find funny, is they changed the name of this ballpark depending on the team that was playing in it. Dodger Stadium when the Dodgers were in it, Chavez Rafine Stadium when the Angels were in it, and in baseball teams play pretty much every day, they alternated home and away, sometimes even on a daily slash nightly basis in the mid-60s. So the ballpark actually would change names like halfway through the day. I think it's fascinating. That is fascinating. And for all the listeners that um, caught something Travis just said there, not that Wrigley Field. No. <laughs> Again, that's explained in uh, in the Angel Stadium episode. A, a different Wrigley Field known as Wrigley's Million Dollar Palace. Let's get back to Dodger Stadium. The current capacity is listed at 56,000, which is the largest in Major League Baseball if you exclude the Coliseum at total maximum capacity, which we're not sure if that counts. Yeah, we don't count that. We're not going to count that. The largest crowd that Dodger Stadium has seen was back in 1987 when 63,000 people showed up for a visit from Pope John Paul II. So our two largest crowds thus far in ballpark banter have been 106,000 for a U2 concert at Angel Stadium and 63,000, so a little over half of that for a John Paul II rally uh, about 30 years beforehand. Both big draws. Some people might consider Bono. No, I'm not going to go there. (laughs) (laughs) Fascinating differences of major ways that you can fill a ballpark, but We digress, and now I would like to take you through a history of this stadium. Dodger Stadium is built, as we said, into Chavez Ravine, an area that back in the 1950s was home to a primarily poor Latino community that was unfairly and, might I say, brutally muscled out by Los Angeles government as the city was searching for new land to construct a ballpark to house the city's first Major League Baseball team. This was post-war America, and LA, on really the backs of the movie industry and Hollywood in general, was booming. With the ballpark, local officials were seeing more and more dollar signs and really turned a blind eye to kind of the brash human rights violations they occurred as they straight up bulldozed neighborhoods and displaced thousands and thousands of residents to make room for the stadium. An old diagram of the building site actually shows a proposed plan to simply pour concrete over an abandoned elementary school to elevate the surface level so cars could easily park alongside the stadium. For those of you who are interested in a far more in-depth look at this kind of dark era of LA history, I'd encourage you to read Eric Nussbaum's book called Stealing Home, which outlines the ordeal entirely and provides kind of a vast step back picture of the very ugly legal and humanitarian battle that was taking place, which is an unfortunate stain on the Dodger franchise and might I say this beautiful ballpark uh, and collectively is known in history as the Battle of Chavez Ravine. But back to the stadium at hand, unbeknownst to many, the Dodgers were actually not the team that was initially expected to move into this new stadium. At first, it appeared that the team that was going to take up residence in the ballpark was actually going to be the Hollywood Stars, the Pacific Coast League team. But as Walter O'Malley, who was then the owner of the Brooklyn Dodgers in New York, entered squabbles of the city of New York for rights to build a new stadium out there, he opted to move the Dodgers across the country in 1958 and occupy 
the under-construction ballpark at Chavez Ravine, which soon became named Dodger Stadium. Poor Hollywood stars did not get their brand new ballpark that was going to be solely theirs. So when LA got its second team, we just talked about this, that was the Angels, they, as we mentioned, actively played here for about three and a half, four years in the early 60s. Given their desire not to play in a stadium titled after another team, they, as Kellen just mentioned, called it Chavez Ravine Stadium, which meant the ballpark's name not only changed daily, but as I mentioned earlier, sometimes twice a day when the Angels would play in the morning and the Dodgers would play in the evening. Now, before we take you around the bases and talk about three things that you should absolutely see or at least experience if you get to go and check out a game at Dodger Stadium, as always, I want to know how this ballpark fits into the city of Los Angeles, or what we call the walkability score. It's no surprise, should be no surprise to anybody that this will get a very poor score in a section called the walkability section. We'll give it a 25 on the 20 to 80 baseball scouting scale, just a step worse even than Angel Stadium. There's a number of things that go into this, of course. It's surrounded on all sides by vast array of parking lots and is tough to get to any other way than by driving yourself and paying that money for parking. When we do this section, I want to definitely stress that like walkability is not everything. It's the only thing we rate because it's something we're interested in. Mm -hmm. But for example, when we first arrived here, like when we, on our trip in 2011, I was totally enamored with this ballpark. The second we stepped into the gates, the views and the atmosphere, like it was an absolutely amazing and like memorable, impactful baseball experience for me. And so the fact that we had to drive and pay for parking and sit in lines, it's not everything, right? When you get into the ballpark, it's a totally separate category. But, you know, the reason we talk about this and the reason we're interested in this aspect of these ballparks is that you do lose something, right? So, for example, Dodger uh, fans are famous or infamous for arriving late and leaving early right? Mm -hmm. To beat the traffic because you're stuck in traffic on the way there. You want to beat traffic on the way out. All those cars leaving and arriving at the same time creates this huge gridlock. And so you're going to miss a Mookie Betts leadoff home run or um, or a walk-off home run because you had to leave early to so you could get back in time to put your kids to sleep. You know, And, and those are the things you miss when you can't walk um, out to a train station and, and be home within the hour somewhere somewhere in the city, right? Yeah, I think it's it's pretty safe to say that we enjoy every ballpark. You grow to appreciate certain attributes that some stadiums have and maybe other stadiums don't. And as you said, when we talk about walkability, it's not a judging scale. It's a rating scale. But with it, right. if you finish lower in this kind of you know 20 to 80 scouting scale, if you're finishing lower, what you're really talking about is, hey, there's a different culture at this ballpark. At some point, we're going to talk about Milwaukee and American Family Field, which is not a walkable stadium, but the culture of tailgating is a huge part of Brewers culture. Same thing here with the late arriving and early departing crowd. You know, you can criticize it if you want. I think it's just kind of part of the L.A. mindset that everybody's there between the third and the seventh inning. And then, you know, the true diehards, are the ones who don't mind waiting, you know, after the, the ninth inning and hopefully seeing a Dodgers victory to wait in traffic for, I don't know, an hour and a half to get on home. Yeah. So. You know, a, a low score, a beautiful ballpark, um, a complicated history, and let's go around the bases.
Do you dream of visiting every major league ballpark? Know someone who does? Or maybe you need a new gift idea for a baseball addict in your life? Check out Touch Em All, a book written by me, Travis Parker Smith, host of this show. Tracing the tale of four teenagers who drove a beat-up old hippie bus to all 30 parks in one summer, this memoir is a fun, easy read that's perfect for this baseball season. And it's the inspiration for this podcast. Order it online or, preferably, from your local bookstore. And head to ballparkbanterpodcast.com to learn more. Now, back to the show. So we're now going to take you around the bases of Dodger City. I'm giving you three things where, as I said earlier, if you're lucky enough to go and visit this ballpark, you should experience, or if not, you should at least know about. Kellen, what's on first at the home of the Dodgers? On first for Dodger Stadium is uh, simply the way that it was built. Like many things in Los Angeles there on the San Andreas fault line, Dodger Stadium was built with earthquakes in mind. As Travis mentioned when he was describing the history of the ballpark, it was built into the existing hillside of Chavez Ravine, both to provide extra stability and to take advantage of that unique Southern California landscape. However, it's not as if the stadium itself just conveniently and nicely fit into the sloping hill. Nothing ever is that easy. There was a ton of work that was done to move land, to fill land, to create land, to make the park and and the surrounding lots uh, possible. Are you referencing the aforementioned Battle of Chavez Ravine and the inhumane reshuffling of residents by chance? Yeah, exactly. So the nearby neighborhoods on the hillside there were basically all bulldozed. There were millions of cubic yards of earth that were then poured over them and followed by concrete to pave the area and make it smooth. Mm. So they had to change levels to make sure that it was smooth and flat all around because cars, they didn't want cars parking on a sloped hillside. And so that creates this series of various elevations that surround the ballpark. The area beyond the outfield section, which is called Dodger Way, is at the lowest elevation, with the pavilion behind the home plate entrance being the highest. This space is called the top of the park. It's a heck of a hike up from the lowest parking lot, but I think well worth the walk because that space gives everyone this beautiful panoramic view of the LA skyline behind the ballpark. And extremely cool when you enter the park from this gate you really like arrive at the very top of the ballpark and then make your way down from there this was one of the most charming and uh impactful entrances i have ever had at a ballpark it was amazing to me walking in and looking down at at the the shining uh green grass and 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 the seats and the colors and and out the view into the ravine. It was really special. Yeah. Once upon a time, there was a series of white letters on the ravine hillside there that just said, think blue. And they were stamped and stenciled in the uh, same exact font as the Hollywood sign. And uh, the, the, the letters were removed about a, a decade ago, maybe a little bit longer. And some fans have petitioned to put them back up, but the petition hasn't really seen much traction. But you're right. When you enter from this top of the park, you're treated really to two 
very different views. One of the gorgeous ballpark in front of you, which kind of descends down in this uh, wide scaping five tiered grandstand all the way down to the beautiful diamond and the, the ravine across the way. And then behind you is the panorama of the city of Los Angeles. It's it's pretty special. Yeah, it's great. I mean, I mean, almost every other entrance at every other stadium is you scan your ticket, you go through the gates and you walk up, yeah. you go up some stairs and you make your way to the main concourse or something. And so to, uh, to enter from the, the top level and, and look down at all that Dodger stadium has to offer. Very, very cool feeling. Now we love highlighting unique attributes of any stadium. Sometimes it's like a colorful seat. Sometimes it's a very uh, unique dimension or like wall height, and sometimes it's an entrance. And throughout this podcast, we're going to be talking about a handful of special entrances to ballparks. But rounding first and heading to second here at Dodger Stadium, we're actually going to stay at the top of the park here on second base and talk about a plaza that's at the highest elevation point, aka what we just discussed, the entrance to home plate. Up here, along with the great views of downtown LA that I just mentioned, and then when you go through the gates down to the ballpark, there's actually first and kind of in an in-between space, a wide open plaza with large human-sized statues of the numbers that the Dodgers have retired. So those would be jersey numbers. These aren't statues of people. Sometimes ballparks have statues of everybody that they have inducted into their team hall of fame, or in New York at Yankee Stadium, they have a little monument park behind center field. Here, it's just the actual numbers that are cut out and standing free on the pavement. There are 14 of them up there, as the Dodgers have a decent amount of retired jerseys giving their storied history, including Don Drysdale, Sandy Koufax, the original Jackie Robinson, and so on and so forth. There are also two microphones, and this is my favorite part, which honor broadcasting legends Jamie Jaron and, of course, the legendary Vin Scully. So you can go and take a picture of you standing next to the Jackie Robinson 42 or then Vin Scully's microphone standing about 10 feet away. And another thing that I absolutely love about this top of the park and this retired numbers plaza, as they call it, is you can actually rent it out for private events. Some people use it for like corporate functions, or I've actually seen on Instagram a handful of people have bought it for their wedding. And some people have even gotten married next to Jackie Robinson's number 42, for example. Diehard baseball fans and some diehard Dodger fans. Rounding second and heading to third, Kellen, we don't often talk about food or drink on this podcast unless it's a very key component to enjoying a ballpark and getting the true fan experience. That happens on third base here. Yeah, on third, let's let's talk about the Dodger dog. So as you said, we don't often talk about food or drink because those things can tend to change year to year, decade to decade. You know, we try to look at if you're going to the ballpark to Dodger Stadium in 10 years, hopefully this podcast helped you. I don't think the layout of the landscape or the views will have changed that much. But as you said, you know, the price of a beer or maybe they're honoring a certain player with a beer or a, a food item or something that will change. So we do often stray from it. But the Dodger dog is is a pretty big staple for the experience at Dodger Stadium, is it not? I would say so. I'm pretty confident the Dodger dog isn't going anywhere. It's become pretty synonymous with um, with the ballpark itself at Dodger Stadium. What is the Dodger dog? It's a particular hot dog. It can be found, as they say, every 10 feet 
in the ballpark. Yeah. Um, a bit of an exaggeration, I'm sure, but uh, the Dodger dog is is 10 inches long, exactly. It's, it's pretty skinny, and they serve it in like a steamed bun wrapped in this silver foil. So there's there's no fancy stuff with the Dodger dog. It's just bun and meat. It's no frills. The only thing to know is that there are two types of dogs. You've got your steamed and you've got your grilled. So the steamed ones are usually sold by like the moving vendors and the grilled ones are sold at uh, like concourse food stands so that the smoke can drift away from the ballpark. So which one is considered the classic Dodger dog then? The steamed or the grilled? The the grilled is is the the best known and um, really the key one that that you should look for. Now the Dodger dog was created by a guy named Thomas Arthur back in 1962. He was the manager of food concessions at the at the stadium, and he originally branded them as foot long hot dogs, but then he renamed them to the Dodger dog because he wasn't feeling great or honest about calling a 10-inch sausage a foot long. They've they've now become so popular in LA culture that they've actually franchised and opened small stands throughout the city. So you might even find um Dodger dogs at like your local grocery store. Uh, it's kind of like the LA equivalent of ballpark Franks, which is like one of those mass-produced hot dog uh brands that I think is sold across America, certainly in Seattle where we're from, but I think you see this occasionally throughout uh, uh, throughout baseball ballpark lore where something that's so popular in a stadium actually starts to proliferate consumption outside of the grounds. I, I think of Milwaukee and American Family Field. They have their secret stadium sauce, which is really just like a blend of barbecue sauce and ketchup with maybe like a little bit of mayo. I, I don't know. It's it's good. It tastes like all three of those things. Uh, But you can buy it at like your local Milwaukee grocery store now, just like you can buy the Dodger dog throughout a lot of Southern California. Rounding third and coming home, a final fact about Dodger Stadium. We talked a lot in this podcast about how the ballpark was built kind of into this sloped hillside and from the attentive, very land-friendly construction that they made, if not people-friendly, to make sure that cars had flat spots to park on and that the ballpark could actually built kind of into this sloped plot of land. But one of the consequences of that is that they have made it so that the field itself, the ball field, is perfectly symmetrical. The dimensions at Dodger Stadium are 330 feet down both the right and left field lines, 385 to both power alleys, and 395 to center. The wall is 4.5 feet high near the lines, then goes up to 8 feet once it hits the bullpens. This makes Dodger Stadium one of only four ballparks that are perfectly symmetrical in this fashion. The other three being Kauffman Stadium in Kansas City, the Rogers Center in Toronto, and, for however long it stands, the Oakland Coliseum in Northern California. With this, according to Baseball Savant, Dodger Stadium is one of only two ballparks, along with Rogers Center, that has a ballpark factor of 100, which means the ballpark has zero impact on the game that's played there. That wraps it up for this episode of Ballpark Banter. If you're enjoying our show and want to support our work, you can buy us a hot dog at the next game we attend by heading to ballparkbanterpodcast.com. 
While you're there, be sure to check out the book Touch Em All by Travis Parker Smith to learn more about our story and the reason behind the order in which we explore these ballparks. Special thanks as always to Kendall Young, Jack Wilson, and Ruben Palmer for their imperative role in the inspiration of this show, and to all the fans out there who dream of catching a game in every Major League ballpark. Thank you.